Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2151 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we will continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 19 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Today we continue our series in the good news according to John the Apostle. And last week we saw those religious leaders again trying to trap Jesus and make a case against him so they could kill him as they brought that woman supposedly caught in adultery before him and asked him to judge her. Well, after a little writing in the sand... Everyone left. And Jesus was victorious. And when he asked, well, where are your accusers? He says, there are none. And then he says, neither, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. He wasn't excusing anything she may or may not have done that they were accusing her, but letting her know that he did not condemn her and that the sinful life that they are accused her of, that she needs to leave that life. In today's scripture is John chapter 8, verses 12 through 59. It's on page 1662 in the Pew Bible, or starts there. And it's a more extended passage, so I'm going to read it as we go through the message today. In many ways, especially those hypocritical religious leaders, are to Jesus was a radical leader. He was radical to them and imposing, but not intimidating and not frightening, but just imposing and formidable and unafraid as Jesus stood before those who accused him week after week, trying to trump up something that they could kill him with. He entered the temple to find people groping in darkness, spiritual darkness, and then searching for that truth. He boldly stated in our lesson two weeks ago, in chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, he gave the analogy of water. He says, if anyone is thirsty, may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now, the first verse, it was sort of a, and if you remember, as I, I say most every week, that John takes snapshots of Jesus' ministry, and he weaves them together, not necessarily in chronological order, but he weaves them together to tell a message, to tell a story that he wants to tell. Last week, we had a snapshot of the woman brought before Jesus who was accused. Prior to that, he was in the temple teaching, and now we see him back in that temple teaching once again. In verse 12, it starts out, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He fearlessly spoke the truth without any apology. He joyously walked in the truth with his father. Therefore, he constantly was in trouble for his uninhib uninhibited love of the truth. Jesus understood better than any that the price that he had to pay for speaking and living the truth would be severe because he was the divine truth incarnate. He was the light made flesh. 
You remember as we started the book of John several weeks ago, John chapter 1, verse 5, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, below recalls a particular shocking statement from Jesus. He says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And we don't think of Jesus necessarily in relationship to a sword. But the purpose of the sword is to divide. Now, if it's in a physical conflict, it's to divide one part of the body from the rest. But figuratively speaking, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it describes it best. The word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And thanks to Kip that he loaned me one of his swords for today. Cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joints and the marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And socially, this sword separates one group of people from another into two categories. It attracts those who will, uh, will surrender, but it incites violence to those who refuse to surrender to the word of God. There's no room for compromise from this gleaming sword, this sword of truth, which is the word of God. We either need to surrender to Jesus Christ or we end up fighting him. And Jesus figuratively bought, brought a sword into the temple during the Feast of the Tabernacles. Some surrendered and says, I believe. Others began a futile, exhausting, and self-destructive fight. Their response in the study is the stages of rejection. And if you look in your bulletin insert, the page that, that has the stair steps on it, these are the stages of the rejection. And we'll go through these stages in our message today. We start, start out with they contradict Jesus. Then they're cynical about it. Then they deny the truth. They insult Jesus. They are sarcastic with him. And finally, they resort to violence. And those are the stages of rejection that we want to look at today. So let's look at chapter 8. And we'll start back in verse 12 through 18 to begin with. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing in your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and I know where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with my Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who testifies who sent me. Now this discourse in John continues off chapter 7 before the incident with the woman where they left off and Nicodemus tried to plead to some semblance of order and says, well, do we convict him without really hearing him? And they turned to Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus previously at night and was probably a seeking disciple. If he wasn't saved at that point, he was shortly thereafter. And they said to him, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And those who were 
stewards of God's word in the temple didn't even know the word well enough to know at least three prophets did come from Gal the Galilean area. And yet they didn't realize it. After the story with the woman in the last week, we go back to verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, John indicates there was a change of scenery between our episode last week with the woman when he uses the word again, which is typical of John. This particular discourse took place over several days. And we, we, when we read through it, we think, well, this is just chronological and one happened right after another. But what Jesus, John was doing was homogenizing Jesus' message into these snapshots of the pictures that he took and he wove in his gospel. They were undoubtedly, Jesus' message was repeated several times. To visitors, as they came in and out of the temple, he may have been stayed there and repeated that message to different groups of people. And Jesus began to address them. I am the light of the world. And he stood near the treasury, um, temple treasury, as we're told in verse 20. The temple treasury was located inside the court of women. And if you remember the temple, the first courtyard was a court of women. This is where women could go, but no further than that. And that's where the treasury were because the priests certainly wanted any women willing to give money to have an opportunity to give it. And that's where we see Jesus at this time. Perhaps right after the evening sacrifice, but before nightfall, they went into the temple, as Sarah explained, and lit, lit these huge chandeliers of candles that were hanging. It lit up the entire temple. Well, I was all out of few, huge chandeliers with candles, so I'm using this as a representation. Now, some, some Bible students think there were two of these huge chandeliers, others say four, so I went with three candles to represent the mix of that. They lit those candles, and as they were lighting them, I can see Jesus standing up before the crowd and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Note that the statement is exclusive. He didn't say, I am a light among many lights. He says, I am the light, the one and only source of truth. He would invite the crowd of listeners to become children of the light through their belief in him, as we'll look in when we get to um, John chapter 12, verse 36. And he once predicted that his future disciples that he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember back a year ago when we went through that series in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. The Pharisees immediately, of course, challenged Jesus, declaring his self-declaration as invalid because he had no accompanying proof. And you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the Jewish court system, that you could not only have one witness, you had to have two or more witnesses, and you had to present the same evidence each time. And this is what the Pharisees are saying, well, you're only one person, we're not accepting your witness. Because of this, the Pharisees claimed that this testimony was not valid. After all, people could claim anything about themselves, and we see this quite often, on social media and in the newspapers today, people claim truth, but it's their own truth. Jesus took their challenge at face value and then offered the testimony of God the Father. So we go on to verses 19 and 20. Then they asked him, where is your father? 
You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offering was put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now the, the Pharisees responded cynically. They said, where is your father? They knew the apparent circumstances behind Jesus's birth and that his father Joseph was now dead or his earthly father. This is a question was a backhanded slur delivered at the level of an inside joke. Perhaps it came with an in this insult came with a wink or a nodding of their head or a knowing look saying, well, where is your father? He's dead. And we don't even know that he was your father. Jesus ignored the insult and responded with a rebuke, having an ironic double meaning. Anyone who believed in Joseph as Jesus's father didn't really know or identify who Jesus truly was. Nor did they know God personally, because if they knew, they would know that Joseph was not his, his um, biological father, that his father was God. Jesus declared himself to be the means of knowing God personally because Jesus was that perfect representation, that perfect imager of God himself. And that is why we're told to be like Christ, to be like Jesus, because we are to be like that imager that Jesus Christ was. As we go on to verses 21 through 27, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, I cannot come, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. Let me catch my place here again. <laughs> you are not of this world. I am or you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Guess what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell to you. And I tell to the world. They did not understand that he was telling about his father. Now, John puts these sidebars in quite often in these, his passage to clarify what this passage was, was getting at. Now, Jesus repeated his indictment of the Pharisees from um, John chapter 7, verses 33 through 36. We saw the same type of, of verbiage here, saying that they would never see him in heaven because they did not know God. And again, the religious leaders took him literally. They were so myopic in their view that they could not see that Jesus was speaking figuratively here. So Jesus explained them, meaning in a simple language, you are from below, you are from this earth, you are from the realm of the fallen creation. Above is the heavenly realm where no sin can exist. Those born below are doomed to die in their sin and then suffer eternal punishment for their deeds as he told in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, as he was speaking to Nicodemus that fateful night, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is from above because he is God. 
he and his father are one. And his statement is rendered, I am he in this passage. However, the Greek is simply ego, I me. And it means I am. And I like the passage John read this morning because it ties right in with the the passage today, the message today. It's that self-designation that God said, well, Moses said, well, who do I tell him you are? Who's God? He says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. And believers can be born from above, as we're told in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son. And he asked, the Pharisees asked him, who are you? And Jesus replied, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. But because of their willful blindness, the Pharisees failed to understand what Jesus really meant when he referenced John chapter 3, 13. And if you review John chapter 3, verses 3 through 21, that night of Nicodemus, it shows a striking resemblance to this discourse that he's giving to us today. The Lord's conversation is the same. He did not waver from the truth. As we move on to verses 28 and 30 through 30. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that nothing I do on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I am always do what pleases him. And then again, another sidebar in verse 30 here. Even as he spoke, many believed in him, as John fills in the blanks. The lifting up obviously refers to the crucifixion, the prediction that he made to Nicodemus that night, and Nicodemus came to, to meet with him. Then he repeated his teaching from his encounter with the Pharisees about the healing of that invalid in chapter 5. And Jesus didn't whisper the truth once and then leave the scene. Instead, he taught the same lessons to many audiences daily as he taught in the temple, whether it was in the temple itself or in the synagogue up in, in Capernaum. The discourses preserved by John just rep represents a snapshot of those numerous instances in which Jesus became the target of the religious leader's wrath after proclaiming the truth that he gave. However, John inserted those subtitles, those little sidebars, to reassure the readers that while Jesus' opponents remained steadfast against him in the rebellion, many really did believe in Jesus. As we move to 31 through 36, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then, I will, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now the Pharisees stepped back in here. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, and remember, very truly is a double amen. It means it is true, it is true. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now verse 31 may indicate another change of scenery here, because at the end of the 30, it says, and many believed, and then it says to the Jews who had believed. So it could have been a change of scenery here. And the conversation resumes. And Jesus spoke that many had believed. He then addressed 
them directly in the hearing of the Pharisees and other non-believers that were there. He assured them that their belief was not an end to something. Their belief wasn't the final of what they needed to do. Their belief was the very beginning, a birth of which growth is expected and must follow. If a baby is born and never grows, that's not healthy. And if we're, we are spiritually born from above and do not grow, that's not healthy either. Believers continue in obedience. As believers order their lives in truth, they will know the truth. The Greek word here is genosko. And it's one of at least four terms that John could have used in this passage that means to know. And unlike other, Genosco expresses an understanding rather than just a simple sensory observation. So you understand deeply. To know something is Genosco, to understand it from a deeper level. And it's closely related to that Hebrew word verb yada, which describes the most intimate kind of knowledge. Like a husband and wife know each other intimately, this is the type of knowing that Jesus is speaking of here. Moreover, as one knows the truth, they are set free. And the Greek term suggests a release from an indentured servanthood. Now, we don't understand this much in our lives, but when someone became indebted and had no means of paying off their debt, one solution was to exchange their labor for a period of slavery for the relief of that debt. And sometimes that length of that service might last their entire natural life. The indebtedness here, though, in this passage refers to the penalty of sin. Freedom is a spiritual release from judgment, the free gift of eternal life. In Jesus' statement, the truth will set you free has become something of a truism, and rightly so. While his primary point was the spiritual release and freedom that gives us eternal life, the fact is that truth leads us to freedom in a physical and temporal realm also. As usual, Jesus spoke at multiple levels, and only those who were in tune with what he was teaching could grasp it, because as usual, the Pharisees zeroed in on that single, literal interpretation of being freed from their captors. And being self-centered as they are, as these men were, they applied Jesus' statement to their current condition as descendants of Abraham, by which they claimed to be racially culturally and morally superior to anyone around them. And furthermore, they claimed to never been enslaved by anyone. <clears throat> they must have a temporary lapse of memory here because they forgot about Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Macedonia and Syria. And now under that Roman domination, they were saying, we've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say you'll set us free? What could have possibly been meant by this? Perhaps it's because they were never compelled to worship a man as God, despite their many political masters. Despite the Roman domination of this period and occupation in their land, the Jews were able to worship their God with virtually no interference from their captors. In the temple environment, the Pharisees perhaps gestured toward the sanctuary and asked, what freedom do we need that we don't already have? And Jesus has clarified his purpose of his statement. He's saying the master is sin. And Jesus' statement is, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. It meant to highlight the inferior nature of the status of a slave. That old master, sin, 
uses people for its evil purposes. And when the body of that slave is destroyed, wasted, where it cannot perform any more use, the slave is cast out. And the son has come to liberate the sin slaves from their old master, allowing them to finally become children of God. As we move on to verses 37 through 42, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. You are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that, is, that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. And then the Pharisees piped up, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Now Jesus affirmed to his hearers that they were indeed physical descendants from Abraham, at least in that physical sense. However, they shared that share heritage ended with their physical connection to their father Abraham. Abraham is the spiritual ancestors of all people who believe, including us. We're heirs with Christ Jesus because we had the same faith that Abraham had. He heard and obeyed God's word, Abraham did. Because Jesus was the word of God in human flesh, to reject him is to reject God. Therefore, the disbelieving Jews were descendants of Abraham only in name. The fact that God and Satan are contrasted here as fathers. Certainly, Satan and God are not on equal planes. Satan was originally a created being by God. But in verses 41 and 44, we see him comparing these Satan as their father. After rebuking the Pharisees for failing to heed God's word, he invited them to be true Hebrews, commanding them in verse 38, I am telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the vice of your father. The Pharisees, by not doing the deeds that their father Abraham did, were rejecting their God. Jesus implied this made him, them the sons of Satan, the father of lies, and the, ultimately a rebel against God. His indictment incited hatred in their hearts rather than a prompt reflection and repentance. The Pharisees expressed it with a sneer, a thinly veiled epithet. The phrase, we are not illegitimate children, was aimed at the presupposition that Mary had conceived Jesus illegitimately. The Lord bypassed their insults, as hurting as they may be, as he had in the other verse, where he says, where is your father? To reinforce his earlier teachings that he was on earth to do his true father's will. So we move on to verses 43 through 47. Why is this language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there was no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Can anyone 
can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason that you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now, having invited the Pharisees to believe in God as their aunt, the ancestor Abraham had done, and having felt that sting of their insults in their tirade back against Jesus, Jesus laid bare the source of their unbelief. They wanted to do the desires of Satan, he called as their father. In a particular trait of John, his portrayal of the universe is sharply divided. In John's message to us, through his gospel, there was light and there was dark. There was truth and there was a lie. There was life through Jesus Christ or there was death without him. There was building the kingdom of God or building the kingdom of this world. And there's a great divide between those. John never pulls punches on this. There's no middle ground for John when he writes his letter of the gospel. And it is perhaps this discourse that set the perspective in concrete. Satan is everything that God is not. Not to practice sin is to side, or to practice sin is to side with Satan against God. As John wrote in one of his other letters, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, he clearly states that. The plain and simple reason for the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus as the Word of God was their dedication to their father of lies. So we move on to verses 48 through 57. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not demon-possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they disclaimed, or exclaimed, Now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If you said, I did not, I would be a liar. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know him, or I do know him, and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? The Pharisees responded to Jesus' indictment with their typical venom, beginning with a racial slur to call someone a Samaritan if you were a Jew was to call him a dead dog. That's what they thought about the Samaritans. And then a counterclaim that he, Jesus, was controlled by Satan, not them. And when the biting sarcasm, with biting sarcasm, they responded to Jesus' claim. Jesus' claim was, whoever obeys my word will never see death. In typical fashion, that disbelief based on their spiritual myopic interpretation 
They saw the word of God and they built traditions around it. They could not see the greater picture that Jesus was painting here. And Jesus responded as he always had, allowing his enemies of the truth to be carried away by their own rebellious dispositions. And by the end of this encounter, Jesus had laid an axe to the root of their sin. And that axe cut there to the very core, that rebellion which stemmed in pride. And if you remember, Satan's ultimate rebellion was he was his pride that brought him down. And that's what Jesus points out here. Jesus, though equal with his father, did not seek his own glory, but he did everything to glorify his father. But on the other hand, the Pharisees themselves, and they dared to label God as their God for the source of their own glory. In our last two verses, 58 and 59, very truly I tell you, once again, it is true, it is true, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, Jesus concluded his confrontation with the Pharisees with a yet another unambiguous claim that he was deity. It was preceded by that solemn double amen. It is true, it is true, before Abraham was born, I am. This prompted the Pharisees to gather stones for immediate execution for what they thought was a charge of blasphemy. And I find it ironic that Jesus was surrounded by these men who were masters of the manuscripts. They were guardians of the scriptures. Still, they failed to recognize the living word as he was standing right in front of them. The Lord had entrusted the Jewish people with the care and proclamation of his word. They were exposed to the truth of God on a daily basis as they faithfully preserved those texts with meticulous care, making sure that each successive generation received a purely transcribed copy of God's word, his inerrant word. But preoccupation with every jot and tittle, like breaking rules of the Sabbath, they could not connect the obvious dots. And as the Feast of the Tabernacle, that great ingathering harvest celebration came to a close, Jesus fulfilled his mission. He harvested more believers whose hearts were prepared by the Father. He was separating the wheat from the shaft. He was separating light from darkness, truth from lie, light from death, and God's kingdom from the world's kingdom. He was separating them. And on the other side of your bulletin insert today, I've given you five reasons why people reject the Messiah. And it was true back in Jesus' day, and it's still true to today. And I've listed the corresponding verses, but I'll just list the reasons. First, people lack knowledge. Second, they lack a perception. Third, they lack appropriation. Fourth, they lack a desire to seek the truth. And fifth, they lack humility to accept that they need a Savior. It has not changed since Jesus proclaimed these words. The critical verses, though, for our takeaway for today is verse number 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then verses 32 and 36. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's the message of today's passage. The light of the word, light of Christ, the truth sets us free. We are no 
longer in bondage. We can stay on that side. Next Sunday, Jesus continues to carry out his healing and teaching ministry because he realizes his time is starting to grow close. Many passages in John says his time had not yet come, but now he knows it's growing close. So next week, we'll learn about the blind men's bluff. And I ask you to read John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the light of the world and that your truth will set us free. Let us go with this freedom to carry out your word throughout the world to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to those that we come in contact with, that you will allow the privilege to cross our path, Father. Let us always be willing and ready to share that good news of the hope that lies within us, Father. May we do so in a humble spirit, a spirit that has the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.